Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 through 16. This will be our text for our sermon this morning. As we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians in a series of lessons that I'm calling Basic Christianity, just real basic fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, which has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let us pray. Lord God, you made from one man all the different peoples, all the different nations in the world. And then through Christ, you have reconciled the nations to yourself, making one new man through the cross of Christ. Help us to see this clearly through the text this morning and what it means for us today. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Remember. Memory is... On one hand, a good thing, and on the other, th- on the other hand, it can be a, a hard thing. Memory can be a good thing. We remember good things. We remember vacations uh, from the past. We remember our, one of our children's first steps. We remember when we became a Christian. Some of you had a good time walking down memory lane, because we have some old photos that are out in the foyer. Uh, That was uh, providential for this lesson. You see those pictures of folks, maybe some pictures of you from yesteryear. Memory, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a hard thing, a bad thing. Sometimes we remember bad things, remember words that we wish we hadn't said Remember actions we wish we hadn't done. Remember how people have hurt us 
and how we've hurt people, and on and on the list can go. And yet, God has so created us that we have a memory, and He expects us to put our rememberer to work. This has always been the case for God's people. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15, God had exhorted His people. They are on the threshold of going into the promised land, and He exhorts them through Moses. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh, your God, redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. The memory of Egypt memory of the Exodus it was designed to remind the people of the redemption that their God had supplied them with, had given them in bringing them out of Egypt. And so in light of that redemption, they were to keep the commandments of God. In a similar way, that is what we are exhorted to here in Ephesians chapter 2. We are exhorted to remember the great redemption that we have, Remember where we came from, but then it also points us to how we ought to live with one another in this world. And while we remember the past, Paul, his rearview mirror works very well. And he remembers the past, but he also recognizes, I don't live there. I live in the here and the now. And there are There's a certain way in which we are to live in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross. You see, though previously we were far away, by the blood of Christ we have been brought near. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, the contrast between the then and the there and the here and the now. And so it begins, verses 11 and 12, with this reminder of the past. This is similar to where we've come in this chapter already. The first ten verses, it's similar, but not exactly the same. Here, Paul, in verse 11, addresses you. Remember that at one time, you, and he clarifies that he has in view here the Gentiles in the flesh. The, the, the difference here in, in these verses and, and the past condition in verses 11 and 12 to say verses 1 through 3 that we've already looked at is that in the, the first part of the chapter, Paul demonstrated that both Jews and Gentiles were dead in sin and children of wrath. That's what's common to all people, regardless of whether they have a Jewish heritage or a Gentile one. And then there was a contrast that was made between the rest of mankind, all of humanity, and those who are saved by grace through faith. And he drew out that contrast. Here now, in the latter half of this chapter, Paul emphasizes that while it was bad for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike because of sin, for the Gentiles it was especially bad for several reasons. And he enumerates these in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ, without Christ, totally destitute of the favor and the fellowship that only Christ can bring. All of the blessings of God are connected to Christ. In Him, we have access to every spiritual blessing. So to be without Christ, to be separated from Christ, 
That's dire straits. And in fact, the way that this is written, it could denote that uh, you didn't even have an interest in a Messiah figure, you Gentiles. You see, the Jewish people, they were anticipating someone coming. But you Gentiles, you had no idea about this messianic figure who was to come. No idea about a Christ. And so, again, just to, that alone is bad news all the way around. But then it gets worse. Paul piles on this. He says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is uh, indicating you were shut out from the very presence and fellowship of God. You didn't have a country. You didn't have any citizenship in the kingdom of God, which was manifest on this earth in the kingdom of Israel, a kingdom that had been divinely appointed and had been a theocracy from the beginning, though things got twisted in their history. We are also strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants here, plural, so in view here are all the different covenants that the Jewish people had. Covenant with Abraham, uh, reaffirmed in Isaac and Jacob. The, the Mosaic covenant, covenant of Moses. The Davidic covenant, the covenant God struck with David. All those covenants you were strangers. You had no sharing. You had no knowledge of these covenants. But notice it's the covenants of the promise, singular. And I believe in view here is the one promise that was given to Abraham. Of course, getting ahead of ourselves here, but now we are children of that promise. But the Gentiles, prior to Christ, prior to this time, they had no access to the covenants of promise, which led to a hopeless situation. Having no hope, Paul writes here. In regards to the future, your prospects were bleak. There was no hope, no confident expectation, nothing to look forward to in the afterlife. It's very interesting, the Greek world, they had a word for resurrection. You know, we talked about the resurrection of Christ, when He came back to life, He came back from the dead. The, the Greeks had a, a word for resurrection, but they all agreed, it doesn't happen. Nobody's done that. That's a hopeless situation. You've got a word for something you, you, there's no hope for. No prospect for the afterlife. And of course, there's no hope because there's no forgiveness of sins. There is no resurrection unto life. All there is is this bleak, shadowy existence that they had some concept of, but nothing, nothing of hope. Hopeless and also godless. Without God, literally is atheoi. And you can perhaps hear our English word atheist in that. It's interesting, they were atheists. But wait a minute, the Gentiles, they had all kinds of gods. I mean, Paul walks into Athens and they got one statue to the unknown God just to cover all their bases in case they miss one. Yes, they had many gods, little g. But they did not know the one true and only God. And in that sense, they were atheists. They were to remember this. Don't forget it. And in a similar way, maybe you remember your former 
life, your past condition before Christ. Maybe, maybe in, in some regard you were an atheist. You didn't believe in God before coming to Christ. Maybe you were, in a similar vein, hopeless. Maybe hopelessly lost because of some particular vice or addiction. Maybe you had really no biblical knowledge. You were biblically illiterate for all intents and purposes. And so you had no idea. Covenant, that that wasn't a word in your vocabulary. But regardless of where we've come from in terms of our degree of lostness, where we're all caught is at one point we were all separated from Christ, and therefore we were all disconnected from the blessings of God. But now, verse 13 begins. This is related to verse 4 where we saw, but God. Two powerful words that indicate a complete reversal of things. But God. But now. Now, we're no longer without God. Now, we have God in this world. Now, we're no longer hopeless. We are hopeful. We have have the confident expectation of eternal life with God. We're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. Now we are those children of promise. We're no longer alienated and and separate from the kingdom. Now we are in the kingdom of Christ. And we're no longer separated from Christ indeed. uh, He is our everything. And we have access to every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're united with Christ. But now, that's the complete reversal. Christ makes all the difference. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Far off is language that's indicative of the Gentiles. And they were. They were very far off. But now, through the blood of Christ, and when you read about the blood of Christ, that's supposed to point you right back to Calvary and right back to the cross where He shed that blood. Because of the cross work of Christ, and His atoning work that He accomplishes on the cross, because of that, now we are near. How near are we? Paul digs into the reason for this nearness in verses 14 through 16. Here's the reason. And and Paul really begins to to dig in here to uh, ideas and, and concepts which would have been readily available to them in the first century. He says, for He Himself, notice this, He Himself is our peace. Notice the, notice the contrast here. Paul's been talking to you, you Gentiles in the flesh, you who were far off. But now he includes them with this language of our peace. He is, Christ himself is the peace for the Jewish person as well as the Gentile person. And, and by extension to today, he is our peace regardless of our ethnicity. He's the peace for Hispanic, Mexican people, for black people, for white people, for Chinese people. He is our peace for the nations. By the way, He's the only one who can bring that kind of peace. People talk about peace in the Middle East with the Israelis and the Palestinians. Peace will not reign until Christ is king there. The, even within the, the Islamic world, 
There are different warring factions, Sunni Muslim, Shiite Muslim. Again, there will not be any peace until they abandon Muhammad and recognize Christ as Lord. Of course, we have our own ethnic divide, which we're going to highlight here in just a few moments, but I'm going to tell you right now, spoiler alert, Christ is the answer. And He's the only answer. He Himself is our peace. How did He do this? He has made us both one, just one body, just, just one new man. That's the language Paul's going to use here. He's made us both one. There's, there's the union, the unity. How did He do that? He has broken down in His flesh, and that points again to the cross, when He gives His body on the tree, broken down in His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. This is an allusion to the temple. And Indeed, the deeper you get into this chapter, He's going to talk about how we are that temple now. But He leans into this metaphor of the temple because the, the, the temple proper, you had not only the temple itself, but then you had, you had different uh, levels of access to the temple. For example, you, you had within the temple itself the the most holy place. Only one guy could go in there one time a year. That was the, the high priest. Connected to that and just outside of the most holy place was the holy place. And, and again, not everybody could go in there. Only priests. And by the way, only priests only came from the tribe of Levi. You couldn't be from the tribe of Dan and be a priest. And not all Levites, by the way, were priests. You had to be appointed to that work. But priests could go in there, and they performed their day-to-day services in the holy place. Outside, you had uh, a level for the, the Jewish men who had access there. Outside of that, you had a court for the women. Outside of that, you had uh, a court for the Gentiles. I may be mixing those, but, but you get this idea. There were, there were varying courts for different people. And, and you couldn't violate that. In fact, they had signs. These archaeologists have dug up signs that were posted outside the temple that essentially said, trespassers will be killed. Serious business. What was missed in all of and by the way, this is one of the reasons why in, say, Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 36, Paul gets into trouble and nearly loses his life because of one of the false allegations that were brought against him, which was, we saw this guy bringing Gentiles into where they shouldn't have been. Again, that's how serious it was. And so because of this, there was this hostility. The the Gentile hated the Jewish person because of those barriers, a perpetual reminder of separation. The Jewish person was arrogant and no doubt arrogantly derided the Gentile as other You're not part of us. You don't have all this good stuff that we got. And so there was that hostility, that enmity that existed between these ethnicities. But again, what was missed was, and this was missed by Jewish people and Gentile people, what was missed was that whole structure, that whole temple design was indicative of the fact that everybody separated from God. You couldn't just go, you didn't have access to God which, by the way, this is something that Paul's going to draw out in verse 18, and we'll, we'll pull that out next week. But uh, 
For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. No one had that in the past. And all those degrees of separation only indicated that we were separated from the Holy God. What caused that separation? Sin. Now, again, the Gentiles, because they didn't have all this other cool stuff, they were, they were certainly far off. But even those of you who were near, you weren't really that close. It's because God is absolutely holy and perfect and sinless and can have no fellowship whatsoever with sin. Again, this is the difference that Christ has made. He broke down all of that. That dividing wall was broken down when Christ went to the cross. And now all those different courts and, and, and even, even the, the temple structure itself, Paul leans into that metaphor to say, we all have access to, to Christ and to God. We all can approach a holy God but again, only because of Jesus. He's torn down that wall. And there literally was a wall that separated the Gentile court from the temple court proper. It's gone. Now it's all just one big court in the presence of God. This metaphor here about breaking down that dividing wall of hostility, that will, there will be a literal representation of that too. Less than 20 years. And again, depending upon when you date this, actually it's probably less than a decade. In less than a decade, not one stone will be left upon another in fulfillment of Christ's word back in Matthew 24. The temple will be completely destroyed. And that will be the exclamation mark to the sentence that God started speaking back at Calvary. And what was God saying? He's, he's reconciled the two into one new man, one body, and that one body has been reconciled to God through Christ. And now we are all the people of God. He further did this, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It's a mouthful there. And even the word uh, abolished sometimes uh, is misunderstood here. The idea is he rendered ineffective the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And, and the idea here of being rendered ineffective, it was rendered ineffective to turn Gentiles into Jewish people. Okay? But even here we have to be very specific because Paul uses a, 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 an extended phrase to talk about a specific aspect of the law that was rendered ineffective. He doesn't say that the whole law has been rendered ineffective. And that's sometimes how this is misunderstood. Or even that the law of commandments, right? The, the, the Ten Commandments has somehow, somehow been rendered ineffective. Um, we know this is not the case because in just a few short chapters, when we get to chapter 6, he's going to quote the Fifth Commandment to make his point. And elsewhere, by the way, we see Paul talk about the law and it's good and it's holy and it's spiritual and all this stuff. But it's the law of commandments in ordinances that's been rendered ineffective. What are these ordinances? What kind of ordinances do we have in view? Well, let me just give you one example of, of what I think Paul is talking about here. And it's over here in Deuteronomy chapter 14. We read from chapter 15 a few minutes ago. Prior to that, chapter 14 and verse 21, you have 
this ordinance that's contained within the law of commandments. God, through Moses, tells his people, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. The Jewish person could not consume an animal that had died of natural causes. However, the rest of the verse goes on to say, you may give it to the sojourner who's within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. So, you see here, the Jewish person, although he or herself, they could not eat of it, the, the animal that died naturally, they could give it to the sojourner who was within their midst, and they could consume it. Or they could turn around and sell it to uh, a foreigner, to a Gentile, and they could consume it. Why is that? Well, the understanding is the Gentile and apparently the sojourner had different dietary regulations that did not apply to them, but did apply to the Jewish person. And so... There was, there was food that was off-limits, and something that died naturally was off-limits for the Jewish person. Such dietary regulations have been rendered ineffective because of what Christ did on the cross, and now nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And, and I think there are a number of different laws of com- law of commandments expressed in ordinances that we could go through, but there's just one example, I believe, one of these ordinances contained within the Law of Commandments that's been rendered ineffective. It's been taken out of, out of view here, and now is no longer applicable. And so we have this one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Notice how verse 15 began with a declaration, he himself is our peace. And verse 15 concludes with, so making peace. Peace bookends all of this conversation about making the two one and reconciling that one body to God. Indeed, that's what verse 16 is about. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Remember all this talk about the blood and his flesh and all that? It's tied to the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Whatever hostility and enmity existed between these people groups, these ethnicities, these diverse uh, tribes of people, that hostility has been killed because of what Christ has done on the cross. Here, Paul is emphasizing that being a part of the people of God is not tied to ethnicity. Being a part of the people of God is not due to some biological characteristic. Being Part of the people of God is a spiritual feature, specifically faith in Christ. That is the distinguishing characteristic. So what word do we have to speak to our our culture and our society in which we live? I think we have a very potent one, given the peace and the unity that Christ provides for people. Racial segregation has historically been frowned upon. (laughs) It's a bad thing, yes? 
However, thanks to contemporary movements like critical race theory and uh, so-called anti-racism, thanks to these contemporary movements, racial segregation is once more in vogue. And by the way, just a quick refresher, critical race theory, uh, James Lindsay in his uh, online encyclopedia, New Discourses, defines it this way, and I quote, critical race theory begins with core presumptions such as that racism is ubiquitous in American society and is the ordinary state of affairs rather than an aberration from them. In other words, everything is racist, according to critical race theory. It therefore believes that all interactions across racial difference must account for the influences of structural racism. Under the first core presumption of critical race theory, the question is not, did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in that situation? And that's true for all social phenomena. That is, the racism is presumed to be present and in need of a critical race theorist to find it and point it out. That's, that's, the, that's the, the rotten fruit of critical race theory. Everything is racist. So, how does that manifest in our current contemporary situation? Well, for example, under the banner of diversity, so-called, there are examples of neo-segregation on college campuses across our country. They provide racially exclusive housing, racially exclusive common spaces. The University of Colorado Boulder now offers a special retreat for students whose identity community or communities have been minoritized. The retreat is for career development and networking, not specific to uh, lamenting the minority experience. Portland State University, the Women's Resource Center there, holds meetings exclusively for people of color. Williams College, Massachusetts, held a symposium, but only invited speakers who fit into the categories of African Americans, Alaska Natives, Arab Americans, Asian Americans, Latinx, Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders. Latinx, or Latinx, I By the way, I guess that's where I live, right? But I don't remember voting on that. Anyway, UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, offers special race-based housing. And in our own backyard, UC Berkeley, offers four orientations based on race, in addition to the main orientation. The world, brothers and sisters, continues to repeat the sins of the past. I've said before, history doesn't so much repeat itself as it echoes. In this case, man, it really seems like it's repeating itself, right? The church presents a, a society in contrast that is not, again, based on genetics or biology or how much melanin you possess in your skin or lack thereof. Entrance into God's kingdom has always been based on faith. It's always, always been this way, by the way. You can find this not only uh, under the law, but even before the law. Why Paul was so keen on going all the way back to Abraham as the father of the faithful. But the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, he even goes back before that. 
Remember, he talks about Abel. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And I know we like to key in on, uh, what, blood sacrifice versus the, uh, Cain's sacrifice was just of the field. I don't think it was that. The writer of Hebrews says it was by faith that Abel offered that sacrifice that was more pleasing to God. And then you have uh, Enoch, and by faith Enoch, and by faith Noah, all these. And, and I don't think the writer of Hebrews is necessarily saying, these are the only guys that had faith, these that are mentioned. There were probably others, but these are the ones that we know about based on the revelation of Scripture. But it's always been by faith. And we get off on the wrong foot if we start defining the people of God by ethnic privilege or assuming that certain people are closer to the kingdom based on ethnicity, it's simply wrong-headed. We need to abandon, or at least guard against, the notion that ethnicity grants special first-class privileges within the kingdom of God. Both John the Baptist and Jesus himself emphasize that it is not ethnicity which counts for the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Briefly, Matthew chapter 3. When John the Baptist is approached by the uh, Jewish religious leaders of his day, he tells them they need to repent. But then notice this, Matthew 3, verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. There's, there's the ethnic privilege. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus, in John chapter 8, he is also confronted by the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and they make a, they say what John tells them don't say. Uh, this is John chapter 8, verses 39 and following. They answered him, Abraham is our father. There it is. Jesus answered them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. There it is. It's not about this, uh, it's not ethnicity, it's not about genetics or biology or any of that. You need to be doing the works of Abraham. What was that? Faith. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And by the way, who's your father? He tells them point blank in verse 44. You're, you are of your father, the devil. Ah, so it's a spiritual heritage. It's a spiritual thing. Again, it's, it's faith. Not the amount of melanin or lack thereof within our skin. That's what... It is faith that gives us right standing with God. Unless you believe that I am He, Jesus says, unless you believe, there's the faith, that I am He, you will die in your sins. It's always been of faith. And so Paul, emphasizing here, that God has made the two. One, Jew and Gentile. That, that catches everybody, every, every ethnicity, every ethnic group, every, uh, why, we, why we sing that song, right? Red, brown, yellow, black, and white. And maybe you sang it different when you were growing up, red and yellow, black, and white. We sang it red, brown, yellow, black, and white. But uh, 
regardless of how you sing that verse, they're precious in His sight. And, and Christ has redeemed people from every tribe, language, nation, and people group. And it is always, again, by faith. Remember. Remember where you came from, but then recognize where you live now in light of the cross and what God has, did, has done. And remember, He did it for me. He can do it for others. That's the evangelistic component. We, we, like they, must remember, brothers and sisters. Today, we must remember. And if we forget the mercies and kindness of God toward us, there's a temptation to become insensitive to the lost, to lose faith in God's ability to bring about conversion, to bring others to Himself. That's what, that's what Christ does through His cross, is He brings people from every ethnicity to God. Remember what we were, what we've become by grace, and what God can do for anyone who approaches Him by faith. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we are surrounded by a world that has a mind that is darkened because of sin and therefore repeats the futile, the futile thinking of past generations. They've inherited the futile ways of their fathers. But we have faith that Christ is able to break the chains of sin that trap people's hearts and minds. And so we pray, Father, that you would make us faithful in sharing the gospel in our cultural context. The gospel which says that you accept people from all nations. And indeed, such is your good pleasure in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.